In the Name of Overhead Athletics podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Peter Caliendo, Team USA coach, as well as host of Baseball Outside the Box. Peter has a huge resume when it comes to baseball, and I'm going to let him talk a little bit about that himself. But when we're talking about baseball outside the box, and we're talking with Peter Caliendo here, one of the cool things that we've seen is that Peter has a plethora of knowledge as it comes to drills, practice productivity, and we're going to make sure that we touch on that in this podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Peter. Max, thanks for having me, man. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's interesting being on the other side of the microphone, and I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. How many podcasts do you have now? Do you know? You know, mine, I have my podcast, but I've been on a couple of them. Um, I think sometimes people may be hesitant a little bit of having people that host a podcast on their show. Um, I'm not sure. That's just a guess. Uh, but I know I've had podcast uh, hosts on my show quite a few. One time I had two or three of them because I wanted to get all the different experiences that they had, mm -hmm. you know, with all the speakers that they had or, you know, that they were interviewing. So it's kind of interesting to have four podcast hosts on one show. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Interesting. And it's different. It's a different role. Like you said, for yourself, you've been doing podcasts for a long time. I mean, I remember searching baseball on iTunes podcast years ago and yours was like the top one that came up and there was only like two or three at the time. It seemed like. Yeah, now, now there's a lot more. Um, you know, I think it's been about, I want to say about three years. And it was interesting because I was on one of our international trips. I do international trips around the world, you know, as a cultural sports experience. And I was in the Dominican Republic. And one of the dads that was on the trip, I became friends with him later on. Um, I was just mentioning to him, I heard about this podcast stuff. I, it's interesting, you know, if uh, I'd like to see, maybe do that. Because I kind of, I think I'll enjoy it. He goes, uh, oh, I own a podcast company. You know, <laughs> I, mean, okay. I couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, talk about faith. He owns a podcast company. Next thing you know, they got the show. You know, I, I did the show, but they put it on for me because technolo technology, excuse me, is not my strength. Technology is not my strength. So, you know, it was one of those things that, man, it was just fit perfect. And, and then I just kept doing it, you know, and then, and I did it for Max. I did it for a couple of reasons. Um, one, you know, sometimes a little selfish, right? You want to learn. So you bring mm -hmm. in great, hope to bring great guests. Two, I've always been an advocate, especially for the volunteer coaches, because it's the largest baseball coaches group. They're not organized, but around the world. And as you know, being in baseball, it's the most important group. Yeah. Those are the volunteers with our young kids. It, you know, they make them or break them. If they don't do a, a fairly good job, the kids are going to quit because they're not having fun. We all know that. It's a So I'm a big advocate of that. So that's another reason I started a podcast because I felt like we needed to educate more. And, you know, I've done a lot of coaching seminars around in the U S and around the world, working with volunteers and it's just a passion. So between the podcast and the coaching part, those are the two passions I had and they mixed in perfectly. Have you noticed since you started doing the podcast, uh, the numbers that you've seen at your symposiums or, or at your seminars increase? Yeah, I, I think that there's a definitely a direct result of the podcast. Um, now, you know, to be honest, it's not easy getting an audience for your podcast, right? Because mm -hmm. there's more competition. Um, there's a lot. Now, during the pandemic was a little easier because people were at home, right? right. So we're doing more Zoom and, and podcasts at the same time. Um, and it was a little easier then. But now it's a little tougher because people are back in their jobs. They're doing, you know, their baseball, their seasons. Now, most good coaches, what do they do? They continue education, right? So they're always, even if it's 15 minutes a day, I mean, in the mornings, I listen to at least 45 minutes when I walk my dog. You know, in the afternoons, mm -hmm. I work out. I'm listening to podcasts. Now, I'm not, it's not always baseball, but I'm always listening to something to try to keep the knowledge up. So, yeah, I think it's helped. Uh, you just got to keep going. Um, last thing I'll tell you, you know, I don't know if you ever listen to Joe Rogan and everybody knows yeah. him. Oh, yeah. You know, he's the most popular podcast in the world. I listen to him every day because I feel he's got great, you know, guests that you can learn in general about life skills. Um, and, you know, when he started, his idea was what? Just to be on the podcast and just kind of have a conversation with people. He just wanted to do it with his buddies. Mm -hmm. You know, and it took him a while, even as famous he was, he said it took him a while. And all he, he did was he did it every day. Um, he didn't have any goals. He just did it every day. And then things got exploding. 
Um, so, you know what, I, I kind of follow his lead a little bit. I, I, I want to do it all the time and then see what happens, you know, and hope people will join and listen to the podcast, you know, just like yours. Yeah. And what's interesting there is, Hey, I'm walking, I'm walking my dog. I'm listening for 45 minutes. Maybe I'm working out and I'm listening. Joel Weldon, a long time ago, my dad had these old cassette tapes and I listened to Joel Weldon and he's like, turn your automobile into a university. And I'm sure a lot of other people said the same thing. So I'm driving and I'm driving 45 minutes. I'm driving an hour to work with baseball players. I'm driving to class. I'm doing this, that, and the other thing. And I'm always listening to a podcast because you pick the right podcast. And what he says, you can pick up potentially a year, two years of undergraduate worth of education, listen to a podcast. And so maybe you can say, hey, I'm going to try to get an associate's degree, quote unquote, in baseball, listen to uh, baseball outside the box, maybe listen to this podcast and a couple others. And all of a sudden, I've picked up what maybe it would have taken me a year to do if I went to a seminar every week. And then I add my seminars and on top of it, and all of a sudden, you know, I've grown tremendously as a coach. Maybe you could talk about, you know, going into coaching at a higher level. What are some of the things that you would scale back to coaches that are say that 13 U coach, that 14 U coach that are working with maybe one other coach who played baseball, who's a, who's a parent or something like that. Yeah. You know, and it, it's going to vary Max, you know, depending on, as you know, um, depending on the age you're working with, depending on the number of kids you have, it also depends on the, the season you have, right? Some travel programs might play so many games, practice so much, so it all depends on your schedule. But um, you know, I think something that I would have I downscale if I started now, first of all, if I had a travel program now, I'd make sure uh, because I'm in favor of, I have no problem with people running a baseball business, right? We're all in baseball business. My international trips, it's a business, right? But you have to be able to supply quality service. That's the key, right? People have mm -hmm. to be, feel good yep. about what they're getting for their money. Um, doesn't matter what the cost is, as long as they're getting the value. So I believe that, and I think a lot of travel, the good travel teams are doing this. Um, and this is a concern of mine also. I believe they need to practice uh, during the season. I know it's tough. And what do I mean by practice? I don't mean you need to be pitching and throwing a lot or all that. I mean, you know, taking batting practice, working on some things, you know, even soft toss, having special days where your kids come out just to do fundamental skills, taking ground balls. They don't necessarily have to throw, right? Because we don't want to wear and tear the arm out. They're playing every day sometimes with travel programs. But if they're off of school and you have time in the morning, you know, sessions for kids just to maintain their fundamentals. Because I think what happened, and even their strength and flexibility, because I think what happens a little bit is you have to be real careful with young kids. Um, and that's another reason people go into slumps, right? Because they get weaker, the back gets a little heavier, all that kind of stuff. So if I'm taking ground balls, now I might, you know, if I don't take any ground balls at all, and I just play the regular season travel ball with no practices, because we, you know, they say we don't have time. What happens when that youngster gets a little weak? He might start dropping his elbow a little bit, opening up too early. His footwork's not as good, right? Because fundamentally and strength and conditioning is not there to maintain it. And that's my concern. As a good travel player, you're still maybe get the guy out at first base. But what are you doing on, as far as wear and tear on your body? Right. There are other players that may not because their fundamentals are breaking down. So one of the things I would do is practice more. That's what I would add is add practices to our schedule early in the morning. The other areas I focus a little bit more on in, in dealing with failure, you know, how to deal with failure, uh, the nutritional aspect, you know, what to eat prior, before, during, and after uh, for recovery. I would also, uh, so we're talking about the mental game. We're talking about little, and I think the mental game has to be practiced every day. Again, that's not my expertise, but everybody I've interviewed, you've got to practice the mental game. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to, you know, I struck out. I'm just going to forget about it. Well, it's going right. to be a method, a technique to be able to do that, right? You may miss the ground ball. Everybody's looking at you. You're nervous. You know, you got to be able to flush that down as a famous Ken Rivera said, you know, um, flush it in the toilet and forget about it. But you got it's got to be a technique that you practice also. So I would I would add that. Um, so nutrition, uh, the mental part of the game, I would add, I think those two areas more than anything, I'd obviously practice. My third thing is practice more real game situations um, under pressure. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, you've got to wait to a certain point to do that. You gotta, they got to feel comfortable with their fundamentals, you know, and getting making some decisions. 
because I think that includes decision-making under pressure. And I think we need to start working on some of those things. So I think those are the things for now that I would add that maybe I didn't have as much when I was younger coaching. I gotcha. I know that looking at like Augie Garrido, he was famous for having guys running the bases while his infielders are fielding balls. How do you structure some of that stuff in for guys that are in high school or, or even middle school age guys? who maybe not as technically sound or maybe don't have as much wherewithal on the field to make sure that, you know, there's not total chaos out there um, during drill work. Yeah. I would start off, you know, like anything else, it's, it's a little bit of a building block, but I would start off and give you an example, even with young kids, uh, a play that happens the most is a ground ball and you throw the guy to first base. Right. So um, I, if I'm taking infield and practicing ground balls, I would have runners at home plate running. Now they don't necessarily always have to start at home plate. They can start a little bit further up um, because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to kill them. But at the mm -hmm. same time, eventually you've got to deal under pressure. So prior to that, I would start with a stopwatch. I think a lot of guys do that nowadays. They start with a stopwatch. You know the average time of your runners in that league or in that age group. You start with the stopwatch. They take ground balls, and that puts a little pressure on there for them. You know. Uh, you don't necessarily have the runner yet. Then I would add runners. Um, I'm a big believer in added runners. Matter of fact, in tryout camps when I was with USA Baseball running the Great Lakes NTIS program, which is a national team identification program, um, you know, I, I never ran a 60 unless they wanted us to because somebody wanted it nationally. Um, I was running the bases, timed on the bases, but I always, when we took infield, outfield, when we hit a ball to an outfielder, you know how they're supposed to throw to third base? Right. We didn't, we didn't do that. We put a man on base and then we made them make that decision where they should go, depending on a ground ball or fly ball. We may say one out, you know, or we put man on first and second. Uh, we made, we made situations for them because we wanted to think on their own. Um, and that's a big concern, Max. I don't know about you, but I have a big concern with our players being robots too much nowadays, being told yeah. way too much what to do. Uh, there's not as much instincts involved in the game. There's not as much decision-making in the game. So that's how I would start the, you know, the, the, the ground ball aspect with runners on base. You know, you don't necessarily, you know, you could do it in batting practice, as you know, many people do it in batting practice, but I, I like to do it, you know, in the ground balls, infield, outfield, in that area of the, of the practice. You have a little bit of a control about, how that goes, right? Because as the coach hitting the ball, you're deciding where it goes, whereas batting practice, it's a little bit more chaotic, a little more random. Um, but you can say, hey, listen, I'm going to hit this to the to the left side of this second baseman, and that's going to make this guy over here react a little bit differently. And let's see what happens if I hit the ball here and what how this base runner reacts. And let's see what decision they make, right? When, if right. they don't make the right decision, that's okay. That's a perfect time to fail. And now you might have to replay that um, so that way they actually do the play. I've always been a big believer. If you make a mistake during practice, we just set it back up again. You know, so example, if you have a man on first and you have a ball in the gap and you're doing a relay and there's a mistake, that's fine. First, see how, what they can do, because sometimes we tend to teach before we watch what they can do first. And I think right. you waste time doing that. I think you should let them do it, see what they can do, then make the correction and now make them do it over again. So now they feel comfortable with that, why you made that decision and how it works. So how about just structuring for productivity as well? Because we know a lot of times these guys, these younger guys, they're spending time at practice where, Hey, I'm just standing there shagging balls. And I can recall back to even being in college and, and doing the same thing because Hey, somebody's got to somebody's got to pick up these balls in batting practice, and they, you know, the hitters want to get some some reps on the field, and so here we are. You know, we've already been at practice two hours, and now we're now we're doing some shagging of balls, and there's probably something else better. Or there's definitely something else better we could be doing at the time. How do you structure something like that to make sure that somebody's doing something, working on something at all times? Because especially at the younger levels, I mean, that's one of the things that. I get all the time, you know, working in such a niche and a specific area and I'm, I'm working on throwing, I'm working on pitching and throwing and, and I'm not really working on, you know, this whole practice scheme, but I'm seeing it and I'm hearing about it. So how would you make sure that, Hey, our pitchers are getting the work in that they need to get. Everybody's doing something. Everybody's busy at all times. Yeah, and I think you know this, Max. I mean, the, the most important thing is the pre-organization, right? 
sitting down and, and putting on paper or computer, you know, what your plan is going to be and how you're going to keep everybody busy with giving them some breaks too, because I want kids to be active constantly, I, you know, but they've got to have a little bit of a break once in a while. So that way, you know, they can catch up a little bit because if you get too tired and you've got them running too much, because I've done that where I read everybody going, everybody's moving, right. constantly doing everything, you know, and then you see, they start to they'll go get a little tired. Now their fundamentals break down a little bit, but that's a great point because, um, you know, once you're organized and you have a pretty good idea, an example of what you said, and that was, you know, when you're taking batting practice, uh, who should be shagging? Well, first of all, the outfielders, in my opinion, should only be three of them. Um, and, they, and they should be working on their jumps. Now, you can have more, and I'll give you an example. I was in Japan, and again, I learned this from the Japanese, this part. They took, you know, buckets, put them in right, center, and left, and they had three guys in each line, and the guy in line, the first players in line, they were all outfielders. Now, if you don't, excuse me, if you don't have more than three outfielders, obviously it's a little harder to do. Um, but, you know, don't forget at younger age groups, even infielders need to go out to the outfield and figure out fly balls. They, may, they might play there one day. So what they would do is when you take BP, when the ball's hit, those three outfielders are in charge of that ball. So if it's to the right side, you got center and right field. They're in charge. So they do their job to try to get that ball backing up diving, whatever they need to do. And then they take that ball and put it in the bucket. They don't throw it back in. The next outfielder is in line. So now you've got lines going on. The left fielder, you know, didn't make a play, but he broke on that play. And I think with outfielders, we don't just need to work on, you know, reading the ball off the bat, but anticipating where the ball is going to be. One of the things I don't see enough players doing is when, you know, I, when I played, I didn't have the skills. So what I did, what did I, I had to cheat a little bit. I had to figure out where's the pitch at, What's the bad angle, right? Because I could see the bad angle. And where's the ball anticipated going to be hit? If the ball's away, most likely, but if the bat's delayed, it's going to go to left field. Well, I got to get a jump. I want to see guys moving slightly to that area. Even if they make a mistake, it's a good time to practice that. So if you're organized, you got your outfielders doing that. I know John Smoltz said, and, and I apologize for going longer here, but John Smoltz said, you know, he's gone. He used to have the pitchers. He liked it. He loved taking, you know, fly balls because that's that was his conditioning. Um, the only reason I wouldn't recommend that because I wouldn't want guys, you know, getting hurt. Um, mm -hmm. They can do the conditioning running. Now it's not a bad option, but I'd rather have my outfielders there. Um, the other thing you could do with outfielders, and because you brought up outfielders, you can have one in and one behind. So you got two people reacting. If it's a deep fly ball, the guy, the regular guy gets it. If it's a short one. The other guy gets it. Um, so they're playing in nice. two different sets. Um, you know, so you're keeping people busy. Now, during that same time, let's take batting practice. BP, somebody's hitting, and that's great. That has to be organized depending on your team. Um, but I love BP where you obviously you get loose. Then you start hitting the ball to the right side, you know, a little bit. Then you hit it where it's pitched. But then I think it has to be, depending on the time of year, it has to be a little competitive too. I think, I think sometimes we, we, we just throw BP nice and easy to make them feel good. Well, that's mm -hmm. great. What happens if I struggle with that type of velocity? Um, now, I, mentally, I might not be in a good mind. So I like to have a, a BP where you're moving the ball around a little bit. But at the same time, you've got to have some other drills set up prior to that before they even get to BP. So you might have one player hitting off a tee. You may have another player doing soft toss, front, you know, front toss with wiffle balls on the side, um, and then working into the cage. Um, and that depends on, again, what you're trying to work on. So I think if you're organized, you can keep the guys busy. There's no doubt about it. And I've given seminars and with volunteer coaches that even if you're by yourself, if you're creative and you think of what you need to do in the practice, you can keep your kids busy the majority of the time, even alone. And here's another reason why. We got to give kids more responsibility when we're running practices. Okay, I ran practice for Japanese players. If I told a Japanese player, we're turning double plays up the middle and you're going to stand here and you're going to roll the ground ball to the shortstop or second baseman, then you're going to rotate as you do the double plays. You're not making a throw to first. I, that's the responsibility of the players to do that. I think the younger they are, the earlier we can begin to give them some responsibility because that feels good to have responsibility instead of just, you know, you yeah. telling them, you know, you organizing everything or doing everything. An example, and again, sorry, but an example would be who should be hitting ground balls if you have infield practice, right? Um, or ground ball practice. Let's just say you have two hitters down the first baseline, okay? Those hitters, one is hitting 
to shortstop. One is hitting to third base. You have two hitters down the third baseline, right? One is hitting to first base and one is hitting to second base. They're just taking ground balls. Well, who should be hitting? My opinion at the younger level is not the coaches. Um, it, it should be the players. And coaches might say, well, but that's dangerous. Yeah, but you don't start off by just hitting you know, hard ground balls or real balls. You take wiffle, you know, you take incredible balls, something softer. Mm-hmm. Because who's getting the workout? When I toss a ball up to hit it, that's timing. That's balance. That's vision. You know, that's, that's the whole swing you're talking about. If you throw it up high by accident, you're throwing yourself a changeup. If you're throwing it low, you're throwing yourself a fastball. So now I've got guys that are hitting the ground balls. And what, as a coach, what do I do? I'm walking around. I'm checking it, guys. You're coaching. You're coaching. Yeah, you're these coaching. Guys. yeah, you could pull a player to the side to talk to them while the thing is still going on and players are getting ground balls. The other thing you can do in that situation is add a, a fielder, uh, a person catching the ball for the hitter. Right. So now you got a player catching the ball for the hitter. And what do they normally do? Just catch the ball. No, you know, you normally, you're always doing something. Maybe you're working on the catching the throw, putting the tag down. Maybe you're working as a first baseman, catching and tagging, pretending like you're tagging a base, whatever. Maybe you're working on double a plays. Yeah. Double plays or the relay. You're not throwing the ball and you just hand the ball to the hitter. Right. Now you're getting a lot more work that way. So that that's kind of an example of how I think you can keep people busy. Um, because I think you need to give them more responsibilities. Yeah, I like that. Even, you know, obviously you're talking about wiffle balls. Hey, let's get some bunting in over there. What's one of the skills that a lot of these guys get to, you know, upper levels of high school, college, and even professional baseball. And bunting is like the lost art for a lot of these guys. Agree with you. And I I think we're making a big mistake as young coaches, as coaches, and I say young coaches, I'm talking about coaches at younger levels. Um, like you said, even high school, if, if it's happening or even college, um, I think we're making a mistake looking at major league baseball and saying, well, they don't bunt, so why should we? Not everybody's going to play major league baseball. We know that it's a small percentage. Not many going to play professional baseball. Um, so why are we stopping the bunting game at the younger ages? Because they're not doing it at the older. I've heard that before. And I think that's crazy. Bunting helps hitting. Bunning gets you on base. Bunning brings the defense in. Bunning does so many good things. Um, and now, Max, I don't know about you, but I've put this on Twitter a lot. I've seen it until I've watched a lot of games in the last two weeks because I have nothing to do. And um, all of a sudden, I'm watching more teams bunning than I've ever seen before. Now, I think the reason is the low-budget teams are bunning more, you know, like Kansas City, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Oakland and some of the ones that you know are trying to score runs, they're manufacturing runs, they're really good at it. I've seen a squeeze, I saw uh, a safety squeeze, you know, I saw um, a bun, bun over to third when nobody out, now you got one out, and then they safety squeeze to bring the runner in. Kansas City won a game on that, you know, so the Cubs have started to bun a little bit. So I, I think at the younger levels, we really need to teach bunning, it could be a, a real good arsenal, and it's a good way to also get out of a slump sometimes, isn't it? You can, uh, you know, when you're looking that ball into the bat and you're bunning, now you're controlling your eyes and your head a lot better. You're getting back in that fundamental skill that you should have in hitting. Yeah. And you're doing a little bit more to control the outcome because a good bunner should be able to lay it down. If he's got a strike. He should be able to get the ball on the ground. And that way you you're controlling your destiny a bit more, giving the athlete a little more confidence as well. Cause Maybe they're going through that time where, hey, it just feels like I can't touch the ball. And now, yep. boom, I, I, I lay a nice bunt down. Maybe I'm safe. Maybe I'm not. But all of a sudden, I feel like, hey, you know, I'm seeing the ball good. I, I can I can get it down. I can put put the bat where it needs to go. And now maybe I carry that over into my swings next next at bat. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, I just saw the other day, I'll use an example, a Shaw third baseman with uh, Milwaukee. Uh, left-hander, power hitter. He's like, I think their fourth hitter, fifth hitter, whatever he is. Struck out three times, or was uh, made three outs, I believe. Might have been three strikeouts. Um, what do you do? Bunt it for a hit. People say, well, power hitters can't bunt. Really? Uh, I've seen Anthony Rizzo bunt. You know, now yep. I get it. There's situations where you, they don't need to bunt. I get that part. I mean, they're hit, you know, they got to hit doubles, triples, home runs, whatever, you know, driving runs that way. I understand. But what about avoiding the shift? You want to keep shifting on me. I got two choices. Instead of manufacturing a rule to force people to change the shift, um, how about teaching hitters what we always used to teach, and that's hit the ball where it's pitched. Um, I yeah. don't mind 
and I don't mind having infielders in the infield, you know, and you have, you can go anywhere in the infield and, and I don't mind that rule as much, but when you start telling me, I can't, you know, have all these different shifts all over the place. I think that's wrong. I think, look, you got, you got options. You can bunt for a hit. That's number one. You, you can, you can learn to hit the other way. That's number two. People say, well, they're going to try to pitch you in if you're, if you're a pull hitter. Yeah. But if you look at the statistics of major league baseball and they're going to be worse at the younger levels, I mean, you're going to be shocked. I don't know if you saw this. 24% of the pitches thrown in Major League Baseball hit their spot, okay? 24%. Yeah, now, if you focus on that watching games, because I've started to do that, I've started to look at the catcher's glove more and more and then see where the pitcher throws the ball. Man, it's unbelievable how much they miss. Now, they might miss in the strike zone, but they miss. So what does that tell you? they're going to miss a lot. You're going to get a chance to hit the ball the other way or up the middle because they're not going to hit that spot all the time. So stay away from the inside pitch, look for a different pitch possibly. So my point to all this is we got to start teaching young kids back to where we've always been doing. And, and I, it, the, I think it's a solid fundamental way in batting practice. That is wherever the ball's pitched, hit it hard, but hit yep. it wherever it's pitched. I don't care if you come out of your shoes but hit it hard, hit it where it's pitched. Don't try to pull an outside pitch if you can, you know, if you can avoid, you know, and don't try to hit an inside pitch the other way if you can avoid that too. So I think that's the answer. I guess I, hopefully I answered your question. Um, that's yeah, what absolutely. I would it's, it's almost, it's become something interesting where, I don't know, these guys that are these pull hitters all the time, it's like in their mind potentially, it's like, I got to pull, I'm a pull hitter. I got to pull the ball. I'd love to see somebody just, put a little push bunt the opposite way and just uh, maybe do it once or twice. And then all of a sudden, you know, now these guys aren't going to give me that shift anymore. And now I've got, as a someone who's more naturally a pull hitter, I probably have a greater opportunity to, uh, to get a base hit because they're not in that shift anymore. And you don't see it as much at the, you know, at the younger levels and stuff like that. But you're starting to see it in college baseball even more too, with the quality of scouting reports, these guys are getting. Yeah, I do think you've seen it more at college baseball. I think we need get, we need to get to the younger levels and educate more coaches in this aspect of it. And I believe that, you know, if you start to practice more, I think that's a failure that we're having. That that could be a whole podcast and a discussion. One of the failures because you got to you got to recognize people say, "Well, you might be negative saying this." Well, no, you're being constructively criticized because, you know, what we need to do in the US is we need to get back to practicing more. Um, at the younger levels, especially, I think one mistake we make, um, and the Canadians are great at this and other countries are great at this. Um, you know, the younger you are, the more practices you need, the less games you need. So an example would be if you're an eight-year-old, you know, you might need 80% practice, 20% games. Now you can mix and match and have fun with those games within the practice. That's fine. You know, that's part of practice organization, right? Creating game situations. Then that, that pyramid shifts, the older you get, yeah, you're going to play a little bit more games. So when you get to 16, 15, 16, you might be playing more games. But I think we need to remember they need to practice more. And if we had that, now you're going to be doing more bunning, you know, whether it's money for a hit, sacrifice, whatever it may be. And it's going to help you in the game. But remember, I remember Coach Gillespie, Gordy Gillespie, God bless him, one of the greatest in the, in the world. You know, he, say, he always said, don't have a kid do something in the game that he's never done in practice, you know, and bunning would be one of them. If you watch baseball here, uh, last couple of days, two guys got hit in the helmet. One was trying to bunt, ball came up and in, hit him in the helmet. Thank God it didn't hit him in the face. Um, you know, so you got to practice bunting and knowing how to get out of the way too, if the ball comes at you a little bit. Yeah, it's not, and it's, we're talking about bunting, but it's, it's everything. And in, in fact, like, and the statement goes the opposite way. Don't have them do something in a game that they haven't done in practice. Don't have them do things in practice that they're not going to do in the game. If you're not, if it's not something that's a quality skill that these athletes need to be, I mean, you don't have to spend five hours doing a, a pickle drill where, you know, you're making seven, eight throws. <laughs> Let's try to get the guy out in one throw or two throws. So it's, it's always um, interesting and, and coming from a perspective where I'm so focused on the rehabilitation the biomechanics aspects, you know, it's interesting talking about, you know, these, these sorts of things, because a lot of times better practice management and having your outfielders, Hey, you're going to get 200 fly balls today, or you're going to get 50 fly balls today, instead of the 10 fly balls where you had to catch it, 
throw it to this guy, throw it to that guy. And all of a sudden, maybe I'm not taxing the arm as much because I don't have to make a throw into this cutoff guy who's half the time not really focusing on his transitions and doing things the way he needs to be doing it and just being lax two days ago. And I can just drop the ball in the bucket, but we can carry that even farther. And we talk about too much games and we always talk about, you know, overuse and too much throwing. And, you know, a lot of these younger guys aren't doing anything in terms of development and they're playing a ton of games. And then there's all these showcases. And, and we've talked a lot about that. How can we better turn some of these um, game days where, Hey, we're in this league, you know, we're playing this many games because this is the opportunity that we have in our area. How can we get better on those game days where we know that, Hey, we have 14 guys on this team, or if we're older, maybe we have 18, 20 guys in this team. How can we take those game days and make sure that guys that are maybe not on the field the entire time are improving? Yeah. That, and that, you know, and that's a good point because there are guys that are sitting on the bench a little bit too long. Um, and again, let's look at this as a long-term development when it comes to, developing players because what's our goal as coaches especially at the younger levels that's to keep the, keep them interested in the game motivated getting better succeeding individually right because they have to succeed individually meaning you know if i'm striking out if, if i'm just hitting ground balls i'm happy i'm starting off in a good you know at least i'm hitting the ball and i may even get on base doing that and then that turns into a line drive so i think that's an individual thing so we have to make sure that you know at the younger levels we're looking at development we don't want them to stop playing the game at 13, at 14. People use excuses. They say, you know, well, kids are going to stop because of video games and, you know, uh, girls or boys and this and that. Not if they love the game and they're having fun. Right. I don't know of anybody that's going to stop playing a game they love. They're doing it all the way to the major leagues. So if they really love it, and that's what the long-term development program is, thinking long-term. So if you're, to, to talk about what you said, with, you're, with young kids, if we're getting them in the game, we're not looking at the end result um, of that final game, what it's going to be like, you know, we need to put players in certain situations. Now there's ways to do that. When I was at Mickey on baseball school, we used to have guys come in, teams come in and play us and kids would just be there for two weeks. We didn't even know the kids. Um, but as we got to know them a little bit, if we're throwing a, a you know, a, a pitcher that's thrown really hard, then I know where to put certain defensive guys. So not to overwhelm them with too many plays. At least they get in the game and they feel part of the game to start with, right? And that, and that could change and You can maneuver that later on and give them more experience by putting them in positions where they're going to get a little bit more ground balls. But you got to start somewhere um, and you got to rotate these guys. That's why I love Joe Madden. Joe Madden, when the Cubs won the World Series, what'd you see? I saw nine players that can play several different positions. Yep. Okay, now, why, why can't our young kids play different positions? One, we don't allow them to. Two, we don't train them in the fundamentals. If you can catch, field, and throw, what positions can you not play? Possibly catcher because you need more time and, you know, the fear factor behind the catching. Maybe pitching, but I'm not convinced of that because I think if you throw well, you can at least throw strikes. Mm -hmm. And if you throw one inning, that's it's a good start, right? Now I feel good that I threw that one. You don't have to pitch more than one inning. Pitch them an inning. Pitch them one, one batter. Give them an experience. Two batters, whatever it may be. But if I could throw field and catch, I could play the outfield. I could play the infield. Um, you know, I just have to make some minor adjustments, what I'm going to do fundamentally to get guys out at first base. But so I think it's up to us early on to create those situations for them. And now it bounces back to practice, Max. These guys need to be under more practice situations in like real games. Because if you put them in real game situations in practice, I don't know any better way then for them to feel comfortable when they get into a game, it's not a hundred percent foolproof, right? Just because they do it well under pressure and practice, because it's not the same pressure, but it's better than nothing. And once they get into a game, they're going to feel a little bit more comfortable. So I think we need to do that. Another example would be look at your warm up. Most pitchers at the younger levels, when they warm up, you watch a ball game, you ever see a, a hitter uh, with a pitcher and catcher warming up. Most of the time it's just a pitcher and a catcher. Yeah, just a pitcher and the catcher. You know, I asked this question 15 years ago. I said, you know, why are we putting hitters there? Um, we got to prepare for the real situation. It, just because you did it last week in practice, then it's not going to mean it's going to transfer. We got to prepare yep. them right now. So there's an example right there how to prepare a pitcher to go in and throw against a real live hitter, even though he's used to doing it. Put a hitter up there. Put a righty. Put a lefty. So I think there's ways to do that. Um, and again, that's another show in itself if we just did that topic. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and even talking about, hey, between innings and 
we have guys, you know, guys are running. They're all, okay, run to the foul pole between innings. It's like, what can we do instead of running to the foul pole between innings? And I listened to you talk about this on a podcast a while back, so I probably stole a couple things from you on this. But, hey, let's – if you know, we can have everybody throw into an outfielder, or we can have guys uh, getting a ground ball from the other guys, depending on how many guys we got off the field. You talked about having, um, you know, guys throw with a batter in there. I remember – as a child, my dad was one of my coaches and he was one of these guys who was a student of the game and wanted to make sure everybody was doing the right thing. Hey, let's get two pitchers thrown at a time. Hey, this guy's not going to pitch in the game. Let's get him a bull, let's get him a 15, 20 pitch bullpen before. Let's make sure my my guy who's going to come in first out of the bullpen has got a few pitches because hey, we want to make sure that you know he's feeling good today. We got to get two guys thrown at one time. And now the catcher's getting twice as much work he throws to one boom he's seeing the next pitch come in and then you've got guys doing other things at the same time so instead of saying let's just run to the foul pole between innings or um let's have one guy play catch with the outfielders why while two guys are are sitting there on the bench let's do something let's do something a little more productive in there yeah i agree max and it came to the reason that came up a while back when i was thinking about this was because you know i'm thinking you know a lot of volunteer coaches don't have a lot of practices. Um, now we're talking about something different here. You got your in-house programs, right? And then you got your travel team. So now, say you're an in-house program, you have 20 games, you have six practices for a season start. Some don't even have two, maybe. Um, how do you continue to, as you said, train your players? So well, there's several ways to do that. One, it's on the bench. You can do that by what? Having them have a stopwatch, maybe, you know, timing the catcher thrown down the second, right? And then maybe having another guy timing the pitcher throwing home and seeing it two times, right? So that way you know when you take your lead if you can steal or not. Now, it might be a little bit more advanced for the real young kids, but why do we start to do that? To put it in their minds. Education. I yeah, I don't care if the stopwatch is, is, is if he's perfect on the stopwatch. At first, they're not going to be, right? They're going to be – it's not easy to work a stopwatch that way. But it starts to get them to educate them in doing that. Between innings, you know, like you said. Um, you know, I, I could have, I have a coach sometimes come up, hit ground balls while the pitcher's warming up. Why? Cause I get a lot more ground balls and it's more natural. Now some leagues, and they're better up. ground balls. They're better than the first baseman. Just absolutely. And, it, and they're real because they're coming off a bat. Right. And I don't wait. Once the first baseman catches it, he throws it to a guy right behind them or, or down the line. Cause I got a relay line going. Um, and then as soon as that guy threw the ball and I see that the first baseman caught, I'm hitting a ground ball again. Well, your first baseman's not going to do that. Your first baseman's going to be a little bit more lazy, take his time, and I don't like the work that they're getting sometimes. The other thing is, if I've got a weakness, shouldn't I be working on different things between innings? But ground balls. So I'm taking ground balls. Even if I'm forced to take them first, if your weakness is backhand, well, you need to take more backhand ground balls then. If you're, you know, yeah. if you're weak, and you might mix it up. You might, one inning, you might take a backhand. Another inning, forehand. Another inning, you, you feel the ball, drop it and throw it. Another inning, a double play. Another inning on the run. Whatever you do, it's always something situational-wise. The other part of the game that you can practice, too, and think about this. Um, we take it for granted, right? When you, when a pitcher, when a catcher throws down the second, why do we have to throw the ball always down the second? Why can't we throw a third? Why can't we pick the first? Why, and the other part is, what are the infielders doing? I always see everybody, the second baseman's on the base, let's say, and the shortstop's backing them up. Well, that's not how it happens in a game. First, you have to read the throw, read if the hitter's going to hit it, right, and then break for the base. Well, that should be done every inning when the catcher throws down to a base. You shouldn't have your second baseman shortstop already at the base because, again, that's not working on something. So those are the things that I look at. I mean, I go as far as you, and you know this, I go, and I don't recommend this unless you practice it, but I go as far as giving the first baseman a ball between innings, second baseman short, and the third baseman. And the first baseman's throwing the ball to the outfield, right field. He's throwing a fly ball, ground ball. Throws the ball to the first baseman. He fakes a relay home, turns around, throws another one. Second and short, doing the same thing with the center fielder. Third base, doing the same thing with the left fielder. And the left fielder, you have two options. You can throw to the base, or you can throw home and fake a relay. The reason I say you may want to practice it a little bit is because although you may have a lot of balls at home plate while the pitcher's warming up and the umpire's not going to be happy. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's something you can use in your practice too. You don't have to necessarily transfer that into a game, you know, if you don't feel comfortable. So there's many ways to keep guys busy and to constantly, and it's not just busy, it's to constantly work on something. Right. That way they keep getting better. And you talked about, hey, maybe if you don't feel comfortable, let's not do it here. I mean, the name of your show is Baseball Outside the Box. And I think that 
if we get a little bit more comfortable with doing some things that maybe aren't the status quo and we start to do some things that, hey, this is a little bit better than the traditional way we've done things. We can get a little more out of this. We're going to make a big impact on players' long-term development. And, you know, the system overall starts to get better. Hey, we saw this guy doing this. Yeah, it was really weird. But you know what? That Those guys ended up getting about twice as many ground balls because every inning their coach was out there hitting them ground balls. And then you had your other two guys working on, you know, their double play transitions at the same time, rather than, Hey, they walk up and slowly pick it up and lob it over to first base. And then he rolls it back. These guys are going to be better. You know, think about it. I'm thinking about like, okay, you'd get three times as many uh, ground balls. You get three times as much practice. Who's better at the end of a calendar year. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, let's take that same theory that you're talking about and I'll take it into throwing, right? How many times do we watch, you know, we say, okay, prior to a practice and prior to a game, we're going to loosen up, you know, by playing catch, maybe 10 to 15 minutes, depending on, you know, uh, how you want to do it. And then you're going to stretch it out. Okay. And my concern is that's great, but do I have a better way to do that? And what I ask all the time, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm not really good at it. There's a lot of really good coaches out that do this really well. They always ask why are we doing it this way, right? That's the best way. And, and then secondly, is there a better way? When I do a coaching course anywhere in the world, I want my coaches that I'm trying to teach because I'm learning from them too, man, when I'm there, but I'm trying to teach them, be creative. You know, don't always think what your coach taught you. That's good what your coach taught you, but now think a step ahead and say, how can I make this drill better? How can I make it more effective? How can I include more players into it? How can I include it more like a game situation? So what I try to do is when you take playing catch, um, sure, I might do a couple drills that are relative to, and you, and you know this from the throwing aspect, that are relative to working with um, the fundamentals of your movement. Okay, so I might do two, three drills like that, right? You start off, as you know, you maybe make five, six throws back and forth and all that. And that's great. You work on your fundamentals a little bit. Maybe even just play a little, you know, catch from a short distance. You're starting, you know, a regular distance. Just play a little catch, get your body loose a little bit. But then what I do is I like to create situations right away. So if we're going to throw and we're going to move back little by little, I'm going to start in a fielding position with the ball in the glove. Boom, make the throw. I'm going to start at a forehand position, ball in the glove, boom, make the throw. I'm going to throw the ball up in the air, catch it, make the throw. I'm going to drop the ball on the ground, pick it up the right way, whatever, you know, you're teaching and then make the throw. Now I'm creating as many different situations. I'm still playing catch. I'm not, you know, because I'm throwing the ball, but I'm doing it from different positions because where do the errors come in? They come in when a player feels the ball because they got to go down low, right? The ball's on the ground. Now you got to come up and throw. You can't control your body. Your core area is not strong. You're not controlling your head, all those things. So now you throw the ball away. Well, we got to train that, right? What else are we doing? One of the most critical parts of throwing is the transfer of the ball to the hand. If that's not correct, I don't care how good your fundamentals are, right? If you don't have a good grip, the ball's going to go flying, especially for young kids. So if I have 10 to 15 minutes of this, these drills or this type of throwing, I'm transferring the ball how many times out of my glove? Wow. Plenty. Yeah. Be a doing lot that more 50, than everybody else. Yeah. That might be 50, 80 times I'm doing it every day. Now, also, because we tell players, well, you got to practice, you know, transferring the ball. Well, when, when am I going to do that? Well, you could do it on your own by throwing it off, but kids aren't going to do that as much. Now you incorporate it in your practice. Now, later on, now what I do with young kids, I control that. So what I'll do to start off with, I use a whistle and the, and the, you know, six guys on one side, six on the other, and I'll, and I'll whistle and they go, right? So they, we know the drill we're doing. So if it's a, if we're going fielding position, I'll whistle, boom, they make the throw. I'll, once they're ready, I'll whistle again. The better they get at it, the quicker I go. If they need more work, I go slow. Now, why do I do it as a team? Well, you know the answer. When you do it as a team, it's more controlled. You, the throws are much better. When you're just letting guys play catch on their own any way they want, balls are flying everywhere. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to get to that. Sure. Eventually, you're going to say, now you know your weaknesses. You know what to work on in throwing. Do the drills you need to do with your partner. Boom, go. And now you're going to watch them do it. And they're going to make those decisions. Um, and they're going to have a time allotted to be able to go long, obviously. And then come in, as most guys do, and throw maybe a little some quick throws back and forth. But to me, you're, that's more productive. Now, I'll take it one step further. 
I now will then start with the ball in my glove and whatever position I've got to throw from. So if I'm going to my forehand, I'm now going to run with the ball in my glove, pretend I'm fielding a ball on my forehand. I don't care how many steps you take. It's up to you, you know, and now you're making a throw to your partner. Now we're including movement. Before we were starting in the position you're going to throw from, your backhand or your forehand, right? Now, and the reason I start there is because I'm working backwards. I'm working from the fundamental of where you fielded the ball, and then I'm working to throwing. So we're working backwards when it comes to the drill. I love that. It's been, we've been real successful at that, so I encourage coaches to do that. I hope that makes sense. That's huge. No, that, that makes sense for sure because – and I've, I've said this for a while. It's like we have – two hours we have an hour and a half for practice the warm-up time is like basically wasted in the majority of practices and if you just spent time doing that right there and I tell my pitchers this all the time because I've seen some statistics that say 40 to 50 percent of the throws you make as a baseball player throughout your career are going to be playing catch or in your warm-up throws and mm -hmm. if you sit there and throw with intention on a specific thing, working on something, you've just got twice as much practice as the guy standing next to you and you threw the same number of throws. So you're out there working on fielding. I like that one. I like how you move from, hey, let's work on the transition to now let's move a little bit and, and start to add in more components that are a little bit more game-like, especially as the athletes improve. But hey, we have, you know, you can be working on your mechanics. You can be working on your accuracy. You know, if you're a pitcher, you're working on your pitch um, movement and maybe at the same time, I can also be working on the cognitive part of thinking about, okay, I got to, I'm not throwing it hard, but I got a pitcher up or I got a hitter up there. What's my sequence of, okay, I'm going to throw this. Okay. I missed my spot. I, you know, I'm throwing at his chest, but maybe I, maybe I hit over here. Okay. That was a ball. Now what's going to be, all right, now I'm going to come back with one right here. And I'm, I'm thinking about my sequencing of how I'm going to, pitch as well so it's not just something that these guys can go and say well yeah that's that's great for for my fielders but what about my pitchers at the higher level this is something and and you know I'm kind of of the belief that that everything you're saying right there is something that the pitcher should be doing as well because we know that one of the worst plays especially in the MLB college baseball with the worst fielding percentages are pitchers throwing it over to first base and there may be a lot of reasons for that but let's train it and I just saw just, to, and again, I hate to use examples, you know, but I'm not, I won't mention the team, but I watched the game where pitcher went, I just put it on Twitter, went to field a, a ground ball or a bunt. I can't remember if it was a bunt, but it was a slow roller. And right, right-handed, you know, pitcher, right before the ball goes in the glove, he tries to grab it with his bare hand. Well, you know, the ball's rolling. Let the ball roll, scoop it in and just close the hands together. And guess what happens? I misplayed it, runner, you know, gets first base. And I think your point about the pitchers, um, when we go to the younger players, because I think there's a distinction between younger players and older players. You got to be careful what we're teaching. Yep. When we got young players, I'm teaching throwing, right? So if I'm doing these throwing drills, you can, you know, if they're getting better and better at it, I could have, if I'm playing catch, I could pretend I'm turning a double play as a second baseman. I could pretend I'm turning a double play as a shortstop. I could be a catcher catching a ball, making a throw to second. I could be a catcher throwing the ball in the ground, block, pretend I blocked it, pick it up, boom, make the throw to second. I could be a first baseman holding a runner on, throwing the ball to second, maybe on a double play. So there's different situations that you can do and create in that instance. But what else can you do? And I think we make a big mistake here. Can we work on pickoffs? Isn't throwing, isn't pickoffs throwing? So if I want to pick up the first, well, I could turn on the line, all six of them could do it at one time. And yep. the the other guys can work on tags, right? When you catch it, because you're going to pick off and tag. You can work on a, on a pick to second base, third base. It doesn't matter. You can pick, you work on all three picks. So with young kids, I like to have them do that. Even if, you know, because I'm also trying to teach young kids to have everybody pitch, not just, you know, three guys. Right. Have every guy pitch or gal. And that way, and remember, that's another topic in itself. How, as I said earlier, with young kids, you can get them in an inning and get them out of there. Let them just pitch an inning, feel comfortable about themselves, you know. Now they feel part of the team. Hey, I pitched an inning. That's fantastic. Bring them in another time. You could also pitch them against a seven, eight, nine hitter if it's their first time ever pitching, right? You got to use your smarts. You're not going to pitch them against your one, two, three hitter. You might bring them in in this sixth inning against a seventh, eighth, ninth hitter. Um, the other one I want to bounce to because you mentioned it, and that's warm-ups. 
Um, I think we make mistakes in warm-ups also. I believe in warm-ups. We only have so much time, right? I believe warm-ups. Whatever your warm-up is, and you know this better than I do from your background, whatever that warm-up is, it should include a fundamental skill, okay? So yep. I can go and pretend like I'm doing fielding ground balls, right? And just go, you know, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two. And as I'm doing that, I'm also working on my flexibility, right? Because I'm going down to the ground. I could be working on backhands, going forward and shuffling as I'm going. I could be shuffling, right, my feet and, and pretend and make a throw with no ball as I'm warming up because I'm getting my body warmed up as, you know, so I shuffle and throw, shuffle and throw, and I'm doing this during my warm-up. I could, I could be swinging, take a step, swing, take another step, swing, and keep going. So I, I try to incorporate, or I could be doing rundowns. That's a warm-up, right? Now I got a ball in my hand. I'm learning how to throw the ball, catch the ball, and now I'm doing my warm-ups. So if I'm going to do warm-ups, I try to incorporate them. I hope it makes sense with fundamental skills as yeah, best I can. Task-specific warm-up. A lot of people make the mistake, in my estimation, that, hey, I have to do this warm-up and then I can work on my skill. Well, let's right. train the skill. I mean, I don't have to train it at 100%, but let's train it in the warm-up. I know Lee right. Taft. I don't, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Lee Taft. He's a speed coach. Yep. He's got some great stuff that he does with his basketball players that I've seen some videos on where they're doing ball handling while they're doing their dynamic warm-up. Let's try to implement some of that stuff, just like you're saying here with our, with our baseball players. Here, here's a, you brought up a great point there. Now here we have, let, you know, I think the best coaches have worked with really young kids, I think. And I encourage young coaches, if you haven't worked with five, six, seven, and eight-year-olds, because that's where it's I was. It's a different taught. ball game. It is. And you become a better teacher because it makes you think how you have to break things down for them, how you keep them busy, how to make it fun, right? So if that's if you can accomplish that, the other players are much easier, a lot more easier than the old. So now, if I got young kids, and I learned this from a good friend of mine in, uh, in, in Canada, Chris Johnson, give him a lot of credit here. Um, you know, we take baseballs, and uh, maybe it's a wiffle ball, maybe it's a, a beanbag, you know, for young kids. If they're going to warm up, we're going to have them run around throwing a beanbag up in the air and catching it, right? Now I'm working on catching skills with my hands, and I'm working on my warm-up. You're keeping them busy. They love it because they love to run around. Now I might have them run backwards. Maybe I'll have them shuffle. It doesn't matter where in the field. They're just moving around, and they're throwing the balls up. Maybe I'll partner up. We'll go in circles and throw the beanbag back and forth, right, as you're circling. Then you circle the other way, throw the beanbag back and forth. Now you might run that way, and together you're throwing the beanbag back and forth as you're running. Maybe you're running backwards with your partner. There's so many creative things you can do with a five to ten minute warm up that includes. And people say, "Well, I got to teach them how to catch." You know, well they know how to catch. Well, because they don't know how to use their hands. And then a coach wants to throw the ball up to them. No, no, no. The kid needs to throw the ball up themselves to figure out where the safety is for them first, where they're good at. And then once they get real good at doing it three, four times, what's my question? My question is, uh, Joe or Max, is that an easy toss for you? Well, yeah, I just caught it four times. If it's too easy, what are you going to do? I ask them the question. If it's too easy, what are you going to do? Because we know if it's easy, it's what? Boring. Right. So the kid's going to answer, I'll throw it higher. Well, go ahead, throw it higher. Even if you drop it, you'll know. You'll, you'll start to learn. Now they throw it higher on their own. And now you got 12 kids. Remember that coach we said? I'm on myself. Doesn't mm -hmm. matter. I got 12 kids with bean bags or riffle balls or real balls, whatever. No glove to start off. Later on with a glove, they're throwing balls up on their own. You could do that all day. Kids will run all That's day. Awesome. I've I like had that. kids run and they don't even stop. I've had whistle, you know, come on back. You know, <laughs> they don't even and, and Max, they don't even know they're working on a skill, right? And then it's uh, fun and I'm more efficient, and maybe my practice time is a fraction of what it was. And now people say, Hey, I didn't have to sit there for two hours and three and a half hours. I got more work in an hour and a half and it was more fun. And now we have a sport that's uh, growing to a greater extent as well. Absolutely. And then as you're working on skills, that's, what's going to make the players better for you young coaches. I know you know this, but remember if you're working on a skill, reduce the fear factor so they can accomplish the skill first. And that, and Max mentioned that where we talk wiffle balls or incredible balls or something softer. So that way they're comfortable. And remember, even playing catch, I have young kids when they play catch, we might be only uh, five feet away, 10 feet away. We toss a ball back and forth. People say, why are you so close? Well, because they can see the ball better that close. 
you put it too far, the, the, their depth, depth perception is not there yet. We're going to work backwards on that. We're not going to work the other way in. So they're going to start slow right here and they catch it right in their hand and they can see it and they're, and they're doing it soft. And you might do it with a coach or you might do it with a player. Then as they get better at it, what am I going to do? I'm gonna, sure, I'm going to move back. Um, but we want to start back right away and throw an overhand. And again, that's creating fear. You got to create the non-fear to create the technique. Once they got the technique, it's like anything else. When you're driving, right? Remember when you were 16? I was scared to death when I was driving, <laughs> right? But after a while, because I practiced a while, you know, I became better at it. I got too comfortable. And that's what you got to do in baseball too, especially with the real young kids, you know, the fives, the six, the seven, eight-year-olds. I love it. If you're going to leave us with one thing today, one thing for coaches out there, what's one thing that you would say, hey, maybe we talked about this a little bit, maybe we haven't, but what's one thing you want to leave them with at the end of this podcast? You know, Max, it might be real simple, um, but I've always told coaches, uh, listen, you have a responsibility. You're a volunteer, okay? You have a responsibility. God bless what you do, especially, again, I, I stress the volunteers because that's the, they have the hardest job because that's not what they do for a living. But God bless you for what you do. We need you, um, but don't use that as an excuse. Educate yourself the best way you can to run practices fun, to make kids better. Remember, each kid needs to get better. That kid that's hitting ninth, you need to spend some time with them to try to get them to hit the ball a little bit more. That makes them feel comfortable, gives them confidence. So spend time with them. Learn the game a little bit more when it comes to the development part. Don't worry about the winning aspect as much because as they develop, the winning will come. Okay, That's just a natural fact. Um, the other thing, the last thing, Max, would be anytime you go to a practice, because that's the most critical aspect of the training, you got to be enthusiastic. Um, you may have had a bad day at work. You may have had a fight with your wife or husband, whatever it may be. Um, but the kids don't deserve to have you in a bad mood. You need to be in the most positive mood. You need to be energetic. You need to make sure with it that because they will follow your lead. Whatever you do, they will do. And if you're energetic and positive and encouraging, um, by the end of practice, you should be tired by the time you ran that practice. Now I get it, college coaches and high, you know, it might be a little different. You got five coaches on a staff, but with your young kids, man, we got to get them enthusiastic, playing the game, be encouraging, um, ask them lots of questions, you know, because you don't want to constantly be telling. Remember that parent that constantly tells kids what to do? Well, what happens? They shut you down. Ask the question, why'd you do it that way? That was interesting. Did you do it? What do you, how did it feel? You know, because especially they missed the ground ball. Why do you, you know, they'll say, what did I do wrong? Well, what did you think you did wrong? Right. Did you see the ball into the glove? Did you bend your knees enough? What did you feel? And if they don't have an answer, then that's okay. Then give them the answer. Right. Because, you know, you're helping them out, but I think put the onus on them a little bit. And I do want to add one last thing, folks, if you're a volunteer and you're going to have a parent meeting. Here's what you got to do in your parent meeting. You got to stress and I'll leave it at this stress that the responsibility to get better is on the player. It's on the parent. It's not on the coach. The coach is there to support you, to give you the right information, to guide you, to give you the, you know, the right uh, knowledge um, to work with you. But they only might practice, like I said, only once a week, maybe. And that's not enough to get better. What are you doing as a player to get better? You, you throwing balls against a wall? As a dad or mom, are you throwing wiffle balls in the backyard, spending five, 10 minutes every day playing catch with them maybe? Are you rolling them ground balls, even if you don't know anything as a parent? Are you spending time making them better so that way they're more successful in the game? And that's fun between parents. Are you doing those things? If you're doing those things, that's what I would encourage. And I encourage when you have that parent meeting, tell the parents that. You're there to help them, but I need your help because this game is a skilled game that needs to be practiced more than once a week. It has to be practiced three, four times, and you can do that at home. Have some fun with your kids. So that's my message to everybody for today. Awesome. I just want to say one thing, which is we've talked about the volunteer coaches and how important their job is, but I want to thank you because what you're doing is a great service to the game of baseball and to all of these volunteer coaches, parents, and players who listen to your free advice and your symposiums. I think what you're doing is phenomenal with your podcast and with all the information that you put out online. 
where can people reach you? What's the best way to get a hold of you or check out some of your material online and, and your podcast as well? Yeah, Max, I appreciate it. Folks, just go to baseballoutsidethebox.com. That's the audio part. You can go to YouTube, Peter Caliendo, just like Max's uh, podcast, subscribe, you know, because you want to subscribe so that way you can get updates when the new shows come up. And what's great about podcasts is you don't have to listen to the whole show. I mean, it could be an hour, an hour and a half. That's okay. Um, I listen to them in parts, right? 10 minutes, 15, 20. Um, and like we talked about earlier, walking your dog, mowing your lawn, whatever it is, right? The university car, whatever the car. Automobile university. university. Yeah, you can do it. So, you know, subscribe. I think that's important. And, and, and folks, it helps both of us if you subscribe because it gets the show out more and it just reaches more coaches and parents and players in the U.S. around the world. The other thing, um, uh, go to Twitter, Baseball Out. I put videos on there if you're interested. Sometimes there's tips on there. So again, Baseball Out for my Twitter. Um, and then um, I want to give a special shout out to ESPN on Honolulu for carrying my podcast. I really appreciate that. And Max, finally, man, I, you know, I appreciate you because, you know, you came to me and, and asked me to be on your show. Great honor. Uh, you know, I got Honor's mine. Keep Honor's up mine. the great work that you're doing, man, because we're all in it together. Absolutely. Well, once again, thanks, Pete. Check out the podcast, Baseball Outside the Box. Make sure to subscribe here. Check us out on the next uh, podcast. And in the name of Overhead Athletics, I'm Max Wardell, signing off. <laughs>